We are well aware that physical limitations after lower limb amputation can negatively impact participation in sports, recreational, and cultural activities. Additionally, lower limb prosthesis users are likely to encounter psychological and social barriers to physical activity and overall health, such as traumatic stress or mood disorders. Specifically, low balanced confidence, defined here as low self-perception in one's ability to maintain balance while performing certain activities, is prevalent after lower limb amputation and may be important to target for encouraging mobility and continued social integration. Therefore, rehabilitation after a lower limb amputation should target physical, social, and psychological functions. Hi everyone, I'd like to welcome you to episode 19 of ONP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodox and Prosthetics. I'm Dr. Steve Gard, Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. My guest today is Dr. Noah Rosenblatt, PhD. Dr. Rosenblatt received his PhD in Biomedical Engineering from Boston University, completing his work in the area of cellular mechanics. During his postdoctoral training in the Clinical Biomechanics and Rehabilitation Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago, he gained a passion for preventing falls in at-risk populations, particularly intact older adults, by improving reactive balance responses. He currently serves as an associate professor in the Department of Podiatric Medicine and Surgery at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science, as well as the Associate Dean of Research for the Dr. William M. Scholl College of Podiatric Medicine at that university. He's a member of the Center for Lower Extremity Ambulatory Research, or CLEAR, which for the last two decades has been dedicated to interdisciplinary research focused on improving the health and function of the lower extremity. Within CLEAR, Dr. Rosenblatt remains committed to applying his strong biomechanics background to address mobility and fall-related issues, not only in healthy older adults, but also in persons with comorbidities associated with limb loss, including obesity and diabetes, as well as in lower limb prosthesis users. In addition to improving reactive balance and preventing falls in these individuals, Dr. Rosenblatt's work seeks to increase community participation and improve outcomes for lower limb prosthesis users. In recognition of Dr. Rosenblatt's dedication to seeking knowledge to improve the wellness of patients with mobility limitations, he was recently named to the Illinois Science and Technology Coalition researchers to know. Today, we will be discussing a recent article that Dr. Rosenblatt published in JPO entitled, Feasibility of an Interdisciplinary Intervention to Promote Balanced Confidence in Lower Limb Prosthesis Users, a Case Study. Welcome to the podcast, Noah. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for having me here and allowing me to speak to your listeners today about this exciting work. Well, you've got a really interesting article here, and I'd like to start out simply by asking, why does this topic interest you? Yeah, so I think the interest really stems from some of that work you alluded to related to intact older adults and preventing falls in that population. There's quite a lot of information that suggests that fear of falling is a contributor to increased fall risk, and I had an interest in how fear of falling or the mechanisms by which fear of falling increases fall risk, particularly how it may impact reactive balance. 
and kind of just stepping back, I'm, I'm speaking about fear of falling, which is kind of a bigger construct of which low balance confidence is related. We often use low balance confidence as, as a metric of fear of falling, almost a symptom of this fear. And so, as I mentioned, I, I became very interested in this idea of fear of falling, low balance confidence in older adults. And there was considerable literature in that population in terms of development of interventions to reduce fear of falling and increase activity. And as you alluded to, I was well aware of the prevalence of the issue in lower limb prosthesis users. But in looking at the literature, really, it came to my attention that there were no similar types of interventions that existed in that population. And so that really suggested to me there was a, a critical gap that needed to be filled, particularly if we're interested in approaching prosthetic care from a holistic viewpoint. So what was the purpose of your study, Noah? So as you alluded to earlier, we know that low balance confidence is a prevalent concern for lower limb prosthesis users. And surprisingly, low balance confidence is only moderately associated with impaired balance and gait. Nonetheless, we also know that it's an issue in that low balance confidence is a predictor of whether or not a person can, or lower limb prosthesis user can obtain a level of activity consistent with a community ambulator. It's also predictive of social participation and of quality of life. And the thing is, there's evidence that suggests that focusing only on that physical abilities does not necessarily result in improvements in balance confidence. Some early work from Bill Miller's group in which they followed prosthetic users after initial rehabilitation demonstrated that in the three months after leaving rehabilitation, while well, walking ability improved, balance confidence did not improve. And some other studies also demonstrate, you know, focusing on walking and walkability alone and improving that doesn't correspond to improvements in balanced confidence. So we know it's, a, it's an issue. We know that it's more than just physical in nature. And some of those interventions I mentioned with regards to older adults really demonstrated that multidisciplinary interventions that include components focusing both on the physical underpinnings of the local confidence, as well as some of the thoughts and cognitions behind it, are most effective at addressing the issue. So knowing that that has been demonstrated in older adults kind of was the motivation for our study. We wanted to see if it was possible to develop a similar intervention to address the needs of the lower limb prosthesis user to improve balance confidence with the ultimate goal really of increasing activity and trying to get the prosthetic user to engage in activities that they may otherwise be avoiding as a result of those confidence issues. Very nice. So is that as a backdrop, Noah, did you have any hypotheses or expectations going into this study? Yeah, so as a case study, right, where we were really interested in demonstrating initial feasibility of, of this type of intervention. So it was not hypothesis driven, but what we planned to do was to evaluate the initial effectiveness of the intervention, looking at how some of our outcomes improved with the intervention, also looking at feedback from the case subject in terms of how they respond, how they felt about the intervention and whether there were challenges that they faced, as well as from our perspective, what were the challenges in implementing the intervention, particularly because we needed that information to help us move forward into translating this type of intervention to a larger study. 
And so moving on into the methods, exactly what were the inclusion exclusion criteria for your research participants? Sure. Because uh, we were interested in addressing balanced confidence and low balanced confidence, one of the criteria involved coming into the intervention with low confidence. And so we assessed that as having a score of 75 or lower on the activity-specific balanced confidence scale, which is a scale of balanced confidence that's commonly used and has been validated for the uh, population of interest. In addition to that, there was a criteria that the individual needed to be able to stand unassisted for a minimum of two minutes at a time. And that was dictated mostly by some of the physical aspects of the intervention required that minimum ability. The exclusion criteria included mini mental stats examination score of 24 or lower. So they need to have the mental capacity to be able to appreciate what it was we were doing, particularly with some of those cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, and they could not have any neurodegenerative diseases. Okay. And would you please describe the training protocol for your study? Yes. So before I explain that, I guess I should let the listeners know that I'll go through it in some broad detail, but there's a very detailed explanation of all aspects of the intervention can be found. We have a publication in a journal called Trials, which really lays out all of the details of this intervention. Kind of the most important ones are, well, first off, this was an eight-week intervention. We had one session per week for eight weeks. Each session lasted between 90 and 120 minutes. In each of the sessions, there was a physical therapist and a behavioral therapist present throughout the entirety of the session. And the sessions essentially involved physical therapy aspects and cognitive behavioral therapy aspect. The physical therapy was primarily in the form of active video gaming, and we used a device called the CMIL, which is a product from Motec, which is a company from the Netherlands. It's a instrumented treadmill, and it offered six different games to what they call the balance suite, and the games focused on static and dynamic balance, as well as gate adaptability, and they utilized a front-end video screen where there were visuals provided to the patient uh, in which they responded by shifting their weight or um, moving their body accordingly. The reason we decided to go with active video gaming is because the evidence suggests that patients enjoy it more. It may be more motivational for patients. And it also provided a way for the therapist to increment the difficulty in a systematic way based on how the balance suite was set up. So that was really the active gaming component, the physical therapy. The cognitive behavioral components, there were four major aspects to them. One aspect was behavioral recording in which the participants were asked to pay attention to their thoughts and behaviors in the community and write down really any times that, that he felt that some of his thoughts were getting in the way of doing things, and particularly his thoughts as they relate to fear of falling or low balance confidence. And that information was used by the therapist to guide the discussions that took place. There was goal setting that went on. So part of the intervention involved identifying what was important to the individual and recognizing what would be attainable goals within both the short and long term. So even after they were done with the intervention, what could they continue to try and accomplish? There was an aspect of the CBT training that included thought restructuring. So paying attention to some of those thoughts around their balance abilities and evaluating the extent to which they 
actually were reflective of individuals' abilities and whether they needed to rethink about those thoughts. And then finally, there was what we called exposure therapy, which was an activity that was developed conjointly with the behavioral therapist and the physical therapist. And this, these exercises within the exposure therapy came about as a result of some of the information that emerged from those behavioral recording forms. And really what it was is it involved coming up with exercises that focused on some of the activities that were noted to be problematic for the individual, essentially having them engage in those activities and through that process, starting to habituate some of those stresses and malcognitions around engaging in those activities as a way to get them to be more confident. So those were, in a nutshell, what, what the intervention entailed. And as I mentioned, you know, there's a lot more detail as to what goes on in each of those aspects that can be found in that manuscript. Very nice. A rather unconventional approach to therapy. So once you administered these training protocols, how did you go about collecting data? Right. So we collected data at four different time points. We collected it before the intervention. We collected it four weeks into the intervention, eight weeks into the intervention, and one month later. There were patient-reported outcomes that were collected. There were performance-based measures that were collected. The patient-reported outcomes were validated surveys, including the primary outcome being the activity-specific balance confidence scale. We had other similar measures, including the one that specifically addressed gait and self-efficacy related to gait rather than broad plethora of activities. We had one which was called fear of falling activity, the fear of falling avoidance behavior questionnaire, which specifically got to the extent to which fear of falling was interfering with specific activities, which again was part of our, our kind of the main thing we wanted to address. We looked at social participation. We looked at quality of life in terms of health and overall quality of life as reflected in the well-being scale of the prosthetic evaluation questionnaire. We utilized for performance, we looked at Burke balance scale and the L-test of walking. And we also had an activity monitor to track steps per day in the community. And we linked that with a GPS monitor as well. And we were particularly interested in seeing whether we can increase activity outside of the home, right? With the, with the emphasis being on trying to increase community participation. Very nice. So a very comprehensive approach to collecting data based upon kind of the uh, the therapies that were being applied here. And exactly. And, and to some extent, as, as a feasibility trial, we wanted to determine which of these measures we saw the strongest effects in to kind of point to ones we might want to consider for larger trials moving forward. Makes a lot of sense. So... Based upon your protocol, your test protocol, your inclusion-exclusion criteria, would you share with us a little bit about the demographics of your specific participant? Yeah, so our case study was a 58-year-old male who had a unilateral transtibial amputation, and it was nine years prior to when we started with him. The amputation was a result of osteomyelitis secondary to diabetes. And he also presented with a drop foot on the contralateral side that I believe there was no AFO or any sort of orthosis warrant for that. 
He expressed concerns related to weight bearing on his prosthetic side, and he did not use a cane or a gait assistive device for ambulation. So what was the primary findings of your investigation, Noah? Right. So this study, as you mentioned, necessarily had a lot of outcomes. Our primary outcome, again, was that measure of balanced confidence, since that was really what the intervention was targeting. And one of the main findings was that we had a very strong impact on this measure of balanced confidence. Here's the activity-specific balanced confidence scale. At the initiation of the intervention, the score was around a 48 on a 100-point scale, so 48% confidence in those activities. And that increased to a 91.9 at the one-month follow-up period. So that's well beyond the clinical important difference or minimum detectable change for that metric. And we saw similar changes in those other measures of gait self-efficacy, as well as a reduction in that avoidance behaviors that were measured through that figure falling avoidance behavior questionnaire. We also did see increases in social participation through that. Uh, we used the French Activity Index. And we saw considerable improvements in the steps per day outside the home. That increased from around 3,300 to around 6,800 steps per day outside the home at the one-month follow-up. And, you know, in part, we'll probably get to this a little later on too, but that was driven by the fact that this individual who was employed took a job during the one-month follow-up period that required him to be on his feet a considerable longer amount of time. So that did partly drive that that metric of steps outside the home. We also saw improvements in performance-based measures, including the Berg balance uh, increased from a 44 baseline to a 53 out of 56 at follow-up. So again, that's a meaningful improvement in, in balance abilities as well. So overall, I mean, we, we were extremely excited about these results demonstrating the initial effectiveness of this intervention. So you've had a lot of positive outcomes based upon the therapy that was administered here. One of the things that really kind of surprised me, Noah, was that this participant had their amputation nine years prior, so they could be considered a long-time prosthesis user who we might assume wouldn't respond well to this type of training. Did you have any concerns about the potential of this individual to be responsive to the training? That That's really a, a great question, and was one that we thought about quite a bit in developing this intervention, whether or not we wanted to target the acute user or the chronic user. I think there's a general thought that during those early stages when, it, when an individual first receives their prosthesis, they're getting rehabilitated, they're, they're learning to interact with the device. That's when rehabilitation is mo maybe most important, may have the greatest impact in terms of long-term function and outcomes. But I guess what we rationalize and what we would argue is there's really a need for lifelong rehabilitation of the individual who uses a lower limb prosthesis. And if for nothing else, for example, the fact that they're aging with the device, how does that interact with the device? And particularly if you're talking about fear of falling and balance related issues, that becomes a very important thing to consider. The other thing to consider, especially with this chronic prosthetic user, is some of the things they learned nine years ago may not stick with them anymore, depending on what they've started to accommodate to in the community, how they've interacted with the device on their own. 
they may have developed behaviors that may be positive or may be negative for, for what they're trying to achieve. For example, our patient here, we identified that one of his fears in an activity that gave him a lot of stress was ambulating on stairs. And when we asked him to walk on the stairs, we noticed that he used a step-over-step -step strategy, which is not the safest strategy and not necessarily one that would be trained when learning to use a device as opposed to step-by-step -step putting both feet on each riser before moving to the next, right? And simply by showing him that this is a safer way to do it, it opened up doors and, and, and it led to an immediate reduction in his stress as it revolved around ambulating stairs. And while that's likely a skill he was given when first learning to use the device, clearly it was lost somewhere over time. And so really there's that disconnect and that need to think about the lifelong needs of the patient. And I'd also say whether you're talking about the acute user or the chronic user, the way we designed the intervention was somewhat intentional to help either individual. And what I mean by that is, is it's a very customized intervention. We identify the goals that the individual has, we identify their needs, what, what's getting in the way of them personally. And for that matter, you know, I think working with somebody who's been using a device for a long time, perhaps they may even have a better pulse on that and be able to articulate that better than someone who hasn't been using the device. So I think that answered your question there, Steve. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Noah. Were there any other unanticipated surprises in your findings? And if so, can you explain them? In full disclosure, we, we were somewhat surprised by just how effective the intervention was on this individual, right? And I guess we were, to some extent, a bit lucky in that this individual was very receptive to the intervention, which certainly helped us out. There were homework assignments that were provided, which he was adherent to, completing all of them. He had a desire to improve. And so that, to some extent, may explain the extremely strong findings that we had. I mentioned that he even took that new job. I think we were very surprised by that. So he worked in a school during the school year and we were working with him, finished up. It was the summertime. And so we took a job at a factory where he was on his feet for many, many hours during the day, moving through complex environments to go from where he started with the balanced confidence score of 48 to that type of job really, really surprised us. And even perhaps what surprised us more was that after doing that job for a couple of weeks, he had the self-awareness to say, you know what, this isn't actually as good for me as I thought. He, he pushed himself a little bit too hard and was, was starting to develop some, some limb pain, for example. And perhaps being in this type of intervention where there is this self-awareness helped him to realize that as well. So those were kind of on the positive side of unexpected findings, right? There was one maybe unexpected, less positive, if you can say that. I mentioned we collected the prosthetic evaluation questionnaire quality of life assessment or the well-being scale rather. And even though we saw all those improvements in all those other metrics, for some reason that metric we didn't see improvements in. And we argue that that might reflect this patient's health concerns and those health concerns interfering with overall quality of life. Uh, and that's an inherent challenge when you're dealing with this patient population. So that was a little bit of, I guess, a surprise in light of the really positive findings that we saw for most of the other metrics. Did you encounter any notable problems in the course of your study? And if so, what would you have done differently? 
I think in general, when you're dealing with this population, as I mentioned, there's always issues, especially in a, in a long-term study, to manage the patient in terms of their health needs. The intervention lasted longer than eight weeks because he, well, he had an illness during one week. There were some prosthetic-related issues during another time. So I think with this type of intervention, you do need to be flexible. I think one of the biggest challenges that was recognized, too, was scheduling. This intervention involves working with two therapists and coordinating their schedules with a patient who has, as I just mentioned, for example, health issues. And so that's still one aspect of the puzzle that we're still trying to think about. For example, are there ways to incorporate some of this intervention offline or rather online, kind of not in person, and to simplify the need to have two clinicians on site at the same time. That's probably one of the biggest challenges. And you know, that kind of brings up another point I think that's worth making, and that is you need a well-coordinated team of professionals to work with these individuals. Exactly, yeah. So I think some of our work right now is looking at what does that look like? How can that work within the existing healthcare system? What is the process for linking an individual who may need this care and who might benefit from this care, linking them to this care? How do we do that? Is there a way to involve the prosthetist in that process a little bit more or include some of these therapies on site at prosthetic clinics, right? I mean, all of that requires time, money, and resources. We're not naive, but we need to start somewhere. And that, that's where we're going with this. And we're kind of getting into an area here because we do have a very clinical audience listening in. What do you think are the main clinical takeaways of your study? So I think one takeaway in general of this work, and it relates to that great intro that you provided with regard to the problem, is that clinicians, if they're not aware of it, should just broadly consider some of these psychosocial aspects that might be affecting their patient and their ability of their patient to maximize the benefits of the prosthesis they're given. So even if you're giving your patient the best fitting prosthesis, even if you watch them walk and their function is ideal in the clinic, think about some of the barriers that might be getting in the way once they leave, right? I think what we've shown is it is possible, despite a lot of challenges, to implement an intervention to address one of those psychosocial factors, in this case, low balance confidence. And there may be ways to address some other factors that you alluded to earlier in terms of mood, PTSD, things of that nature, that the prosthetist could connect patients with as well. So I think this is a great first start and really something for prosthetists to just be cognizant of when working with their patients. I agree. So for anyone who's interested possibly in kind of delving into this a little deeper, maybe trying to do something on their own, do you have any recommendations for future research directions based on your work? Well, for our group in particular, we're looking at the ways in which we can help the prosthetist easily identify the patient with these barriers. There are there's screening tools, but they're not ones that the prosthetist is necessarily trained in. The idea of addressing psychosocial factors kind of really feels as though it's, it might be outside the scope of practice for, for the prosthetist, right? And we're not asking that they get involved in that, but we want to 
help them to identify when that might be needed and kind of provide them with ways to connect patients to um, resources that might help address that. There's some work going on with regards to self-management of prosthetic care in terms of addressing some of these psychosocial factors, utilizing, as I mentioned, online programming, and even just, which I'm sure prosthetists are already doing, connecting patients with other patients to discuss these factors, right? That, that can be extremely helpful. So I guess the future research in my mind is really focused both on function, but also some of these psychological factors, mind, body, how the two are interacting, how can we maximize outcomes by providing more holistic approach to prosthetic care? Okay. Thank you, Noah. I know too that you've actually completed a larger study at this point using this protocol. Would you like to uh, give the listeners a plug of the research that's going to be coming out here? Yeah. Thank you, Steve. And hopefully this will be available to JPO readers. But we conducted actually a randomized controlled trial utilizing the intervention that's laid out in detail in that manuscript that I mentioned earlier in the journal Trials. And we were able to have some positive findings, particularly with regards to our outcome of balance confidence again, which in this randomized controlled trial, we followed people for even longer than one month out and were able to see longer lasting impact of the intervention. So there's a lot of nuggets in the manuscript that will soon be coming out in terms of our findings. But what we see in this case study is to some extent translating in a larger trial, which is extremely exciting. That's great. We'll be on the watch out for that publication. And finally, I'd like to ask, would you like to acknowledge any funding you received to conduct this particular study? Yes. This study was funded through the Department of Defense, through the Orthotics and Prosthetics Outcome Research Program. So I'd like to thank them, but they did not have any stay in terms of any of the data analysis or anything we've, we've spoken to. Well, thank you, Noah. I appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast and share some additional insights into your research. Thank you again, Steve, for having me here. I really enjoyed it. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast, so I would like to thank Dr. Rosenblatt for sharing his insights and discussing his research. I'd like to remind everyone that if you would like additional information on this project, you can access the full article about this study in the Journal of Prosthetics and Orthotics. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of OMP Research Insights, presented by the American Academy of Orthodists and Prosthetists. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Please plan to join us again next month at the Academy's ONP Research Insights podcast, when we'll be hosting another author and discussing their recent JPO article. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcast for ONP professionals. ONP Clinical Insiders, a podcast created for conversations on specific areas of clinical care, and ONP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our industry.